0: This morning, I want to ask you a question. What does this Christmas season look like at this moment for you, being almost or a little over a week away? Are you stressed? Are you exhausted yet? Are you excited? Are you filled with anticipation? Are you feeling a sense of loneliness or sadness because holidays like this bring about memories of loved ones who are no longer with us, and you dread the celebration without them? Or anxiousness over the conflict we have with loved ones that these holidays seem to highlight uh, when we get together. Or maybe it's the anticipation of sacrificing to give a gift to somebody just to see the pure joy on their face, which of course is the heart of Christmas and it was at the heart of God when he gave us the greatest gift man could ever get and one we needed most. So whatever, you, wherever you are with your emotions and the activities uh, surrounding Christmas, Our Advent series is meant to focus us, and remind us of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that was accomplished in that gift when he came. So may we take this time and time uh, outside of this service to uh, dwell on, contemplate the greatest miracle the earth has ever known and has ever seen and the true source of joy and hope and peace, which is not meant to be seasonal, of course, but to be experienced year-round. For those who believe. So, in our series, if you've been around, uh, two weeks ago, Caleb preached on the word was rejected. Uh, Mike preached last week on God's successful servant or the word prophesied. And today, we're going to look at the word became flesh. And there's a line in the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that kind of encompasses what we're going to talk about today. And it goes veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity which is what we'll talk today, and today we're going to cover the Word, flesh, two tabernacles, one mediator. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice and thank you for this season that we can focus on you, focus on the gift of your Son. We pray, Lord, that you would give us deeper insight, deeper understanding to all that was accomplished when you came to earth. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal your Word, and as Mike prayed, that Lord, we need your spirit to reveal spiritual things. So pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us this morning to reveal your truth and your grace through your word this morning. Lord, we pray you would be with the speaker and hearer. Give us both grace. Be to speak what you want me to say and us to hear your word clearly. Bless our time, we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so as you may recall, if you were here two weeks ago with Caleb, He went over a few things that I will be going over as well, so you'll get a refresher. (laughs) Uh, Repetition is the the art of learning. So we start with the same chapter, and our messages require a context to be described uh, to the verses that we're gonna be discussing. Uh, And before I get into it, I actually wanna have a little preface and talk about A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Um, It's a book we're going through uh, in in the men's group, Man Cave on Saturday morning, and he actually prefaces book before he gets into the attributes of God the 19 attributes of God before he even gets there he has a section that talks about the God the God incomprehensible the God is incompre- incomprehensible so you may ask well why are you reading a book to help us comprehend God and why are we here if he's incomprehensible All right but but what he means is that we need to accept as we dive into things of the Lord, including the things today, that there are things about God that we cannot fully comprehend. We try, they need to be accepted and believed by faith, right? But we do know there is ways to gain in that comprehension. May not We won't get full, but we gain it through the Spirit, right? The, the Spirit of God reveals the Spirit of truth. So that is what we rely on for understanding and comprehending what we can about God. So we approach God with faith before reason, or we will reason away faith. If we have to understand God before accepting what God says, we put ourselves above him, right? He now becomes subject to our reason. Heaven forbid that. So let's get into the word. Uh, So we're going to talk, of course, the Christmas story, um, not the one in Matthew and Luke. That one tells it kind of from the bottom up. It tells it from the earthly and historical perspective. And what would Christmas story be without wise men, and uh, shepherds, and stables, and stars, and a baby, and a manger? Well, what it would be is John, John 1. John approaches Christmas from the top down, from what was going on in heaven, from the eternal and spiritual realm of what occurred on Christmas. John, it says, John writes with what is called the economy of words. Uh, John is able to say so much with so few words. And what he says is extraordinarily simple in its statement, yet it has such, such depth that man cannot fully fathom those statements. And that brings us to John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Son of the, from the Father, full of grace and truth. The most concise statement of God becoming a man is in this verse It's four words in the Greek, four words in the English. It's the word became flesh. It's the infinite becomes finite. It's the eternal becomes bound by time. It's the invisible becomes visible. It's God becomes flesh. But before we get further, we have to look at, well, he says it's the word became flesh. Well, what is the word? In here, the word actually is with a capital W. John is the only one who uses this term, Word, with a capital W. And he uses it uh, five times in the Bible. Four in John, we're looking at, and one in Revelation, which may be talked about next week when we talk about the word returning. He also, not to be outdone by Mr. Tucker with statistics, the word with lowercase is actually 696 times in the Bible. And this refers to God's decrees, his personal addresses, the speech that he, he used through human lips. He said he put his word in the prophet's mouth, uh, and it 's the written form of god 's word, so that 's his word in in context of the Bible. John uses the word with no explanation why doesn 't he tell us what the word is specifically? Well, first, the word is better known as lagos and, and this is a concept both the Greeks and Jews were familiar with, although they had different perspectives of the lagos uh, the, the Lagos. Uh, really means more than words. It means thought, reason, wisdom, logic, even the unspoken word. Uh, it's said that if music, beauty, and logic is to make sense, there must be sense at the root of the universe. There must be logos. And the Greeks thought that logos was the source of all knowledge, reason, an impersonal force, cosmic, spiritual. Einstein, he believed in the logos. He, uh, he also believed that... Uh, His quote says, I believe in Spinoza's God. Spinoza was a 17th century Jewish-Dutch philosopher who basically was a pantheist. And Einstein says, I believe in Spinoza's God, who reveals himself in the lawful harmony of the world, but not in a God who concerns himself with the fate and the doings of mankind. See, if you can separate God from being a personal God, you can avoid the lawgiver and the judgment and being accountable to that God. You keep him at a distance. Well, he is not at a distance. He is a personal God. So, we want to look also, the Jews had a deeper meaning to Lagos. Theirs was, in the Old Testament, referred to as the word of the Lord. It was the expression of God. And in Psalm one thirty two, 138, verse 2, it says, For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And word here is Imrah, or utterance, speech, the word of God, the Torah. So God's name and his word are perfectly aligned. Right? They are both exalted because... They represent God and who he is, and God is to be exalted. So back to John 1.1, where the word is referenced, and there's three references to the word. Uh, in the be- it says, in the beginning was the word. So we know when the word was. The word was in the beginning, which is the same Greek as Genesis 1.1, which is at the creation of the world. So when the world was created, the word was. This speaks of pre-existence. That which pre-exists time is eternal. And the only thing eternal, of course, is God. And we know the word now is Jesus because we know that Jesus mentions that he was with the Father before the world was. In Genesis seventeen five, it says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And he was before all things in Colossians 1, 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we learn first that our Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. He did not begin to exist when the heavens and the earth were made. Uh, he didn't, much less did he begin when the gospel was brought into the world. He was from all eternity. Secondly, it says, and the word was with God. So this speaks of coexistence, right? A person distinct from God the Father, and yet one with him. Where God the Father was from all eternity, there was also the Word, God the Son. Their, their glory is equal, their majesty is co-eternal, and yet their Godhead is one. And yes, this is a great mystery, something we need to receive by faith without attempting or needing to explain, because we can't. God confirms, or Jesus confirms, he was with God the Father before the foundation of the world in John 17, 24. It says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me when I where I am to see my glory that you get, that you have given me before you loved me before the foundation of the world because you loved me before the foundation of the world and the third reference and lastly it says and the god was and the word was god this speaks of self-existence right the essence of his nature the same as god the word was god he's not merely a created angel or a being that is inferior to God the Father. He is nothing less than the perfect God, equal to the Father, God of the substance of the Father. And this doesn't say the Word is God, for it doesn't have to. Once God, he can't un- be un-God, right? The Word was God before the beginning of time, It's so the Word was and will always be God. So, in summary, the Word is Jesus, who is God, pre-existent, co-existent, and self-existent. There was never a time Jesus was not God. There was never a time that he was not God. And this covers two persons of the Trinity, uh, are clearly covered here, God the Father, God the Son. Uh, We don't have time to dwell dwell into the uh, Holy Spirit, but trust me, that is the third person of the Trinity. So next is flesh, right? So now that we have established the word, we continue with our verse that says, and the word became flesh. So, became is a verb, and the Greek word is uh, genomai And it means to come into existence, um, begin to being, or receive being. Uh, the King James actually says uh, the word uh, was made flesh. So, to be made. So what is it that came into existence? Well, John 1.1 1, 1 makes it clear. We just covered it. It wasn't the Word that came into existence. He pre-existed, So he was always there. So the Word came into existence in the flesh, and now is the name Jesus, right? It was still the Word. The Word didn't cease to exist when the Word became flesh. The Word was now both God and flesh. See, God does not change. He does not grow. He does not become something different or better over time. Becoming a man was a change, but not to his divinity, right? He became a man while remaining and being fully God. The incarnation was the act of God the Son taking to himself a human nature. And we look, uh, he took on humanity while maintaining his deity. We can see humanity part in Philippians 2.7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In Colossians 2:9, remind us that for in him the whole fullness dwelt, or the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Jesus, now having the full likeness of man, and continues to have the full deity of God. So he took on flesh; he took on all the challenges of flesh, all the challenges we have. He hungered, he thirsted, he ate, he drank, he slept, he was wearied, he felt pain, he wept, he rejoiced, he marveled, he was moved to anger and compassion, and he was tempted. J.C. Ryle's commentary says, the union of two natures in Christ's one person is doubtless one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian religion. There are, of course, heretical views of Jesus becoming a man. In fact, docetism, from the Greek word dikeo, which means to seem or to appear to be. Say It says that Jesus was not really a man, but just appeared to be a man. Uh, it's probably the reason it's it stated that, that, God used, or God, that John used the direct words that he did to counter this law. Uh, the other Gospels, of course, are important because they show that Jesus was born. Jesus did, just not, did not just appear on the scene. He was born and he was here for 33 years. Um, Is it really that important that Jesus became flesh and was in the flesh? Well, according to John, it was, because in 1 John 4, 2, and 3, in summary, he says, to deny Jesus came in the flesh is the spirit of the Antichrist. So you see, Jesus had to be fully man if he was going to be the Messiah, to represent us and obey in our place. Uh, He was our representative, and he obeyed for us where Adam failed, where Adam disobeyed. In Romans five eighteen to nineteen, it says, "Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous." So Jesus, so Jesus had to be a man to become an acceptable sacrifice and substitution for us, for mankind. It says in Hebrews two sixteen to 17, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, if Jesus were not like us, he could not be our high priest, representing us before the Father and making atonement for our sins. Uh, this word, propitiation, the comment from Griffith Thomas says, the true idea seems to be that God offers to himself the sacrifice, sacrifice of Christ so the, that he is at once one who propitiates and the one who is propitiated. Propitiation means appeasing the wrath of God. So God appe- appeases his own wrath by pouring his wrath upon Jesus Christ in place of us who believe. Uh, and it is easy to comprehend that God knows our weakness and temptations having been flesh. He allowed himself to experience it. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We now see that we have a perfect priest who experienced our trials, our struggles, our temptations, and he never sinned. He is able to sympathize. Sympathize means be affected with the same feelings as another, to feel for, have compassion for. So we need to remember this when we are feeling lonely, when we are feeling trials that we feel only we are going through, when we think we're alone and nobody understands us. Jesus understands you. He understands what you're going through. Pule, po- commentary, states that this is the most powerful preservative against despair and the firmest ground of hope and comfort that ever believing penitent sinners could desire or have the two tabernacles. So John one 14 continues after the word became flesh and says, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory dwelt among us. The Greek word rendered dwelt means literally tabernacle or to dwell in a tent in Gary Burge's Gospel of John. He says, "John 1:14 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. The Word did not just appear to be human; the Word became flesh. And this assertion stunned the Greek mind, for whom the separation of the divine Spirit and the mundane world or the flesh was an axiom of their belief. But the second phrase is equally stunning for the Jews: the Word dwelt among us and received His glory. This verb for dwelling is employed." in the Greek Old Testament, for the tabernacle of God. In other words, Christ is now the location of God's dwelling with Israel as he had dwelt with them in the tabernacle in the desert. So the tabernacle of the Old Testament is in Exodus 25.8. It refers to it. It says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. See, the tabernacle was a tent, and it was referred to as the tent of meeting. Um, Outside the veil, or the most holy place, was where... Men went to commune with God, and God came to commune with men. And it was the place where bulls and lambs were brought to sacrifice for the covering of sin and to restore peace between God and man. The greatest glory, the tabernacle, was the most holy place. When the Ark of the Covenant is where the Ark of the Covenant stood, in the Ark was God's word or his law. And the lid of the Ark was called the mercy seat, on which were cherubims with their wings touching and under it was a bright light and known to the Hebrew believers by the name of the Shekinah, Shekinah glory. It represented the presence of God. But we know when the glory of the Lord did fill the temple, no one could enter, including Moses. In Exodus 40, 21, it says, And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. And in Exodus 40:34 and 35, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Jewish tabernacle was rather full of law than grace. There were ongoing requirements for repeated sacrifice and obedience to enter. The law represented the way the people were to live in relationship to God and one another. Right? Complete obedience was a requirement for holiness. And God knew man could never obey and become acceptable in his sight, so the sacrificial system was established to cover their sin until the perfect and suitable sacrifice would be provided to fully and forever forgive their sins. So now we look at the second tabernacle, the New Testament tabernacle, which is Jesus. There is a surpassing excellence in Christ, the tabernacle, which is full of grace and truth. The new tabernacle and high priest is here in Jesus Christ. And the perfect and final sacrifice was now made. In Hebrews 7, 26 and 27, it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high, such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has, no, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. It's stated that the glory of God, once restricted to the tabernacle, is now visible in Christ. As the glory of God filled the Old Testament tabernacle, because he was present, he is now present in Christ, and God's glory is revealed in Christ. Jesus, or, uh, John, getting that guy's name mixed up, John uses dwelt four times, And in all the times, it's a sense of permanency, permanent stay, uh, once here and three times in Revelation. Jesus is forever wedded to our flesh. He has entered this tabernacle to go out no more. The references to that tabernacle where dwelt the Shekinah, or manifested glory of the Lord, and with reference to God's permanent dwelling among his people in Jesus. So the other part of that verse is, We have seen his glory, glory as of the Son of the Father. And when we look at Jesus being manifested in the face, manifested means made visible, right? Making known what was unknown or hidden. So Jesus being manifested in the flesh, one would expect to see God's glory, and they did. But we may complain that John and the disciples got to see his glory directly in the flesh, and we don't. Uh, But there's something better let us remember that John and the disciples did not fully see or recognize Jesus' glory until the Holy Spirit came to reveal truth to them. And as that same Holy Spirit revealed it to the disciples, it reveals us to, uh, to us to give us eyes to behold his glory by faith. And it's only through eyes of faith that we can see his glory and receive his grace. Spurgeon writes, It is far better to see Jesus by faith than by sight. It is only seeing through faith that saves the soul. One mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is one who goes between two parties that are in disagreement. In some cases, it's two warring parties. And the mediator's attempt is, or goal, is to reconcile them. Right? We have one mediator. In First Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus now, this verse has really deep meaning for me and was very really freeing to me having grown up uh, Catholic. And I was being taught that the priest was my mediator who I needed to go through to confess my sin to gain forgiveness. This became problematic after, as a third grader, I was sent crying from the confessional after being berated for not having the right words to say when entering the confessional and approaching the priest. See, the words were, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been... You tell how long since I've been to confession. I didn't have those words and was quite uh, corrected abruptly. Um, I don't think he withheld his forgiveness, but I think we, I had extra penance of our fathers and hell Marys to say because of it. Uh, and I had to go do my homework uh, and learn what to say to approach him. Uh, let me assure you and myself that we have a gentle and lowly mediator that intercedes for us daily. He longs for us to come to him and spend time. We don't have to have the right words approach Jesus. He is available to us. And he is is a mediator by nature as partaking of both nature's divine and human. He's a mediator by office as transacting matters between God and man. Because we are alienated from God by sin, we need someone to come between God and us. You see, Jesus represents us to God. He represents God to us. And so, he fulfills the role of the mediator, and because he's fully God and man, he can. So just, just as Jesus had to be a man to take upon himself the sins of men, Jesus had to be God to bear the full weight of the wrath of God for those sins. And because Jesus is innocent, he can enter God's presence and take the role of mediator. And what is, again, the goal of the mediator? It's peace. Jesus' role is to bring peace. Peace between man and God, the peace of God, the peace with God. And to bring peace where there was no peace. And this peace is an individual peace. It's not a global peace. It's not peace on earth. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 10 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's pretty abrupt. Guzic in commentary says that the message of Jesus is reflected as reflected in the Sermon on the Mount is indeed a message of peace. Yet since it, call, it calls the individual to a radical commitment to Jesus himself, it is a message of peace that divides between those who choose it and those who reject it. It's between light and darkness. The division between the two choices explains how Jesus did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And he brings, comes to bring peace, which is shalom, which uh, Block Commentary says that shalom represents much more than merely the absence of war. It denotes a state of harmony and equilibrium among all participants in the divine human territorial relationships. It sets things right between God and us. And lastly, I definitely can't end this without talking about God's grace. In John 1, 16 and 17, it says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, the law was a preliminary pointer to the grace and truth to Jesus. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, Jesus rightly interpreted, presented, and applied the law, and then perfectly obeyed it on the earth. Uh, This was not to demonstrate an example of how we are now to obey the law, not at all, right? He did it because we couldn't obey it. He obeyed it in our place to gain a righteousness that could be imputed unto us who believe when he died for our sins, when he died for us, for our disobedience to the law. Galatians 4.4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And the final verse were really like Romans 10:4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He fulfilled the law for us and then took the punishment we deserved for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Jesus did not come simply to show us grace just so we would know what grace looked like. Jesus came to give us grace and that we would do more than see grace, but that we would Receive his grace. I pray that you've received his grace today. So for application, oh, let's go back to the Christmas season. Uh, If Christmas is simply an uplifting, momentary distraction to life, that we try to fill the darkness with gifts and meals and decorations and gatherings, we may manufacture some temporary happiness, but it won't last. If you are here and do not believe in the fully God, fully man, in Jesus Christ that has come down from heaven to live a perfect life, to be a perfect sacrifice, to die for you. You are rejecting this mediator. You will be left to plead your own case before a holy God. going to tell you, you have no case. You are already condemned, and you will remain that way without Christ. And if you die without accepting the most wonderful gift that ever could be for mankind, You will spend eternity separate from God and under the punishment for your sin. What must you do? <laughs> Receive God's grace. This is the very reason John wrote his book, and he tells us so in John twenty thirty one. It says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what do we do with this message if we're believers? Well, rejoice, brothers and sisters. Be filled with the joy of the Lord for what he has done for us. If you're lacking the joy, meditate on the grace and the goodness of God. It was God the Father, remember, who showed love and grace by sending Jesus as our Savior to die for us. And we are to, as in First John, with that, we are to go and walk as he did. First John 2, 5 and 6 says, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You see, Jesus was our pattern for living. Not that we must perfectly obey the law. Uh, We've already been there. We've proven that's impossible and it's exhausting to try. But in Christ, empowered and led by the Holy Spirit, we can now live showing love and grace to others. And we are to manifest Christ. We are to reveal Christ to the world. We now reveal Christ to the world and how... We live for and love both God and one another. It says in 2 Corinthians 4.11, it says, For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, that we can show the world Christ through our flesh. Let us go tell of the real source of the joy for Christmas. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and your message and your truth. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the grace that's been bestowed on those who believe. And I pray this morning for anyone who hasn't yet. I pray, Lord, your spirit would reveal the depth of your love, the depth of your grace, the unfathomable gift of Jesus Christ, that we would have eternal life, a free gift from you. Lord, I thank you for those who believe. I thank you for the gift of faith to know you, to live in you and you through us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to manifest you to the world, that we we would let live, let Christ live in us, that we would show the world who you are. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.